uh, you know, it's a tremendous time for courage. It takes, it takes courage for everybody to get on this call. It takes courage for everybody to review the data. This is a call for courage because many of us believe that we're in a special spiritual time. There is something going on that's much bigger than the virus and much bigger than public health agencies is going on all over the world. And everyone on this call knows that something that goes on all over the world at the same time in the minds of everybody has to be something pretty big. This information is not intended as legal, medical, or nutritional advice and is for informational purposes only. Vaccine Choice Canada does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements, views, and opinions presented by its guests. Welcome to our weekly call with Vaccine Choice Canada. My name is Ted Kuntz and I'm the president of Vaccine Choice Canada. A special welcome to all of those joining us for the first time. If you find value in these conversations, I invite you to support our work and our mission by becoming a member of Vaccine Choice Canada. In addition to wonderful speakers, you will receive a weekly Choice Insider newsletter with up-to-date information and calls to action to help us protect our rights and freedoms, most especially our right to medical choice. Tonight, we are privileged to have one of the world's leading authorities on COVID. Dr. Peter McCullough is an internist cardiologist and epidemiologist. He is also editor-in-chief of two major medical journals. Since the outset of the pandemic, Dr. McCullough has been a leader in the medical response to COVID-19. He has reviewed thousands of reports, participated in countless scientific congresses and panel discussions, and has successfully treated many, many patients. Dr. McCullough, thank you for joining us this evening. Well, thanks for that introduction, Mr. Kuntz, and thanks to each and every one of you for joining. Uh, my wife is in the room, and she's a Canadian, and she's going to be listening in uh, with the rest of you. And uh, we are just on the phone with a doctor, uh, a doctor for my wife's parents, who's a Canadian doctor. So we're very familiar uh, with the Canadian healthcare system. And what I want to do tonight is just give everybody an update on the data with respect to the COVID-19 uh, vaccines, and then a, a brief uh, mention on treatment as another option for COVID-19. As introduced, I'm an internist and cardiologist uh, and trained epidemiologist in Dallas, Texas. I just finished with patients today uh, at the hospital and office, so I'm one of the few doctors on TV that does see patients and care for patients. Uh, I am the chief medical advisor for the Truth for Health Foundation, which is a new foundation focused on uh, uh, bringing correct and and valid data to Americans and people around the world on COVID-19. I'm the current president of the Cardiorenal Society, editor-in-chief of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine, the senior associate editor of the actually the longest standing journal in cardiology, the American Journal of Cardiology. And I, I have a, a radio program that I started this year called AmericaOutloud.com, The McCullough Report. And so you can follow me there. Once a week, I have updates. I carefully cite all the data and I bring on experts from all over the world to discuss issues with respect to COVID-19, all aspects of the pandemic, from the epidemiological uh, relationships that we're seeing, how it's spreading, uh, treatment, as well as um, 
as well as the vaccines and vaccine safety. And very importantly, we're going through some of the sociological uh, ramifications of this. So let me jump into the uh, uh, topic uh, tonight. And I'll show you a few screenshots from America Out Loud Talk Radio. And again, this is available to you. Uh, feel free to join and, and get the downloads, all the materials. The first point I want to make is for new biologic products, Canadians should be, should be demanding safety, safety, safety. Do you know Canada has so many safety standards for so many products? I remember in Canada, you can't even buy beer at the grocery store. You have to go to the government uh, uh, alcohol uh, distributing a part, if that's still the case in uh, Canada, that you have a very strict uh, road and, and, and public uh, building uh, safety parameters. You have automobile safety standards. We have safety standards, safety, safety, safety. And I can tell you with the vaccines, we have not seen safety standards applied. In fact, there hasn't even been a safety report card given to Canadians. The same wasn't true back in 1976. In 1976, with the swine flu pandemic, we knew that after 23, 25 deaths and 550 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, we knew at that time that the vaccines weren't safe. 55 million Americans were vaccinated, a quarter of our population. You can see President Gerald Ford being vaccinated. And then with that degree of safety numbers, the U.S. government cut the program short. It was declared a failure. And then Americans who were injured were then compensated for what happened. Look where we are today with new biologic products. What we know is that we took a big gamble with the COVID-19 vaccine development program. Last year, I authored a series of op-eds in the Hill and had a, a really a window to America and actually our um, legislative leaders through that year. And I told them we're gambling on the vaccines. I had nothing against the vaccines uh, for them to be developed, but they shouldn't be developed as our only approach to the pandemic. We needed a broad response uh, across multiple areas of, of um, managing the virus. The vaccines come in two versions that Canadians can choose from. One on the left is called the adenoviral DNA vector. That's the um, a Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, that gives a, a, a basically a, a replication incompetent virus to inject DNA into the cell. And then the DNA transcribes messenger RNA, and then the spike protein is produced. Those are the little red um, uh, buttons that you see here. And they are expressed on the cell surface of the virus and taken up by other cells. On the right is the Pfizer Moderna vaccines. Those are messenger RNA vaccines where the messenger RNA directly is injected into the cell. The same process occurs where the cells produce the spike protein. This is the first time in human medicine ever that we have taken a product and trick the body into making a dangerous foreign protein. The human body should never make a foreign protein that's dangerous to itself because the body will react to it and form a reaction against our own tissues as our tissues express this protein on the cell surface and then it breaks free and circulates in the bloodstream for about two hours, uh, I'm sorry, about two weeks where it uh, damages red blood cells and causes blood clotting. We've never had a, any medicine or vaccine that actually causes the body to produce a dangerous protein and then let that protein intentionally damage our bodies for about two weeks during the first uh, circulatory cycle. After the second cycle, then the concentrations are brought down. That's been shown by a paper by Ogata Agal. So I can tell you right off the bat, these vaccines on the drawing board look like they would have been dangerous 
to human beings just by their mechanism of action. And by May, we had seen so many bad outcomes that a paper was published by Bruno and colleagues, 57 authors, 17 countries, that basically told the, the countries that if they can't get safety under control for the vaccine program to go ahead and shut down the programs worldwide, that happened in May. And it was based on the fact that these vaccines have a dangerous mechanism of action. The spike protein damages cells, tissues, and organs, circulates widely. There had been no testing for genotoxicity or birth defects or cancer. Uh, there was a concerning study that showed the vaccines concentrated in the ovaries and potentially could influence fertility. There was a concerning fertility study by Moderna. There were no safety committees assigned. We need external panels, external to Health Canada, external to the US CDC, FDA, and NIH in order to have governance over the program. Right now, our government agencies have a runaway autocracy over the programs with no checks on safety. There's been no proper restriction of the people who were excluded from the clinical trials. The FDA and the manufacturers agreed that pregnant women, women of childbearing potential, COVID recovered, and suspected COVID recovered, all should be excluded from the clinical trials. The FDA and the manufacturers knew the vaccines were dangerous to these populations, and they knew that they couldn't benefit. There's been no efforts to restrict these people out of the public program. In fact, they've been encouraged to take the vaccine despite being excluded from the randomized trials. And then importantly, because there's been no report cards, there's been no attempts to try to mitigate risk. Our governments have not told us who is being harmed by the vaccines and how can we make administration safer for the vaccines. And so without this critical report card, which in my expectation, I'm an expert in drug safety development. I chair data safety monitoring boards for the National Institutes of Health and for big pharma and device companies. I'm telling you, a program this size should have had a monthly report card. Our officials should have gotten out in front of Canadians and Americans and reviewed all the data and tell us who's being harmed by the vaccines. How could it be done better? Uh, which vaccines are causing problems? What are the scenarios? Are there drug interactions? Are there other baseline medications that are being taken? Are there other conditions? Are patients previously recovered from COVID and maybe shouldn't have gotten the vaccines to begin with? Um, who are the ones being damaged? They're not telling us this. There's, we, have, you know, we have three products in the United States. We have Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. &J. They're not telling us which one's the better product. And I can tell you right now, it's very unlikely they're all the same. So this idea of, here, take a vaccine, take any vaccine, uh, you, you know, people aren't agreeing with that because they know they can't be the same. So by January 22nd, we had a safety signal. Uh, we expected about 150 deaths for the entire year, all the vaccines. It can happen as a random event. But here by January 22nd, we had 182 deaths. This is the red box report that comes from the CDC Open Vares program. We had only vaccinated 27 million Americans and 182 deaths we were over the line. I can tell you, if I chaired a data safety monitoring board for the program, the program in the United States would have been shut down in February because of excess mortality. It happens with drugs all the time. Drugs cause excess death, and we shut it down before too many people are harmed. Well, Jessica Rose, who did some of her training in Canada, has shown just with the US data, the domestic data, that there was a strong signal through April, very strong signal, that uh, in fact, mortality was well above the prior years with all the vaccines. And it was undeniable that we were in trouble in terms of what was going on. And now you can see through uh, September 24th, 15,937 deaths, 
an explosive rise in 2021. The deaths appear to occur within the first few days. That's the bottom panel. And there's all kinds of concordant non-fatal syndromes. We have over 700,000 injury reports right now. Over 250,000 hospitalizations, ER visits, or office visits because the vaccine has hurt somebody. Uh, 9,000 cases of Bell's palsy, 6,700 cases of anaphylaxis, 6,812 cases of myocarditis of heart inflammation. Remember the CDC and FDA reviewed this in June. They had 200 cases and they said it was rare, but they warned Americans not to take the vaccines because they can cause myocarditis with Pfizer and Moderna. Now we've got 6812 cases and we have analyses suggesting that about 90% of people with myocarditis are hospitalized because of serious heart injury. Uh, this report should be absolutely eye-opening to anybody who's concerned about product safety in any country in the world. Now we know that the deaths occur very in a very close approximation to getting the vaccines. Uh, in an analysis by McLaughlin, another one by Rose, we know that actually 50% of the deaths occur within 48 hours, 80% of deaths within a week. And this analysis from the University of London, McLaughlin and colleagues has found 86% of the deaths have no other explanation. People walked into the vaccine center, apparently ostensibly well, and they died. Now, this is very, very important to understand. As younger people are being asked to take the vaccine, they are becoming incredibly worried that they could be the next one who doesn't survive within a few days of getting the vaccine. Who's dying? In the McLaughlin analysis, the suggested seniors. It was the very people we were trying to protect with the vaccines. They have the highest overall numerical rate of death. It happens at lower age groups, but the data suggests that the vaccines deployed in seniors, the area where we're worried most about, that's where the most deaths are. Some, some of them, they simply can't survive the spike protein generation in their body, just like they couldn't survive COVID-19. This analysis by Kostoff and colleagues shows that on the left, the deaths related to the COVID-19 respiratory infection, and on the right, the deaths due to the vaccine follow a similar age gradient, even though the y-axis are different. The bottom line is the, the age relationship to death of the vaccine and death due to um, COVID-19 follows a similar age pattern. Now, Kostoff did an analysis and concluded that in a novel best case scenario, basically there's about five deaths due to the vaccine for every death that occur occurs to COVID-19. I was just on US national TV the last hour giving commentary about a report from Taiwan. In Taiwan, they are having more deaths due to the vaccine than deaths due to COVID-19, the respiratory illness. And this is happening all over the world in countries where COVID-19 is at a low prevalence rate. Now, the non-fatal injuries in this paper by Rose and colleagues show that they skew towards younger individuals and involve the cardiac, neurologic, and immunologic systems. So it's internally consistent that the vaccines not only cause death, but they cause these other injury syndromes. Here's one along the um, hematologic system. It's called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea, and this occurs in the veins in the abdomen as well as uh, throughout the body. This occurs about two weeks after the vaccine and presents with bleeding from the gums and nose, as well as bruising all over. And then patients go into renal failure and require hospitalization, blood transfusions, and plasma exchange. This is from a, a, um, a medical journal. This is from a, a peer-reviewed vetted medical journal. I'm telling you that the vaccine is creating whole, whole new diseases now 
for doctors to manage in the hospital. Here's another news disease category published in hypertension, one of our better cardiology journals, showing that the vaccines in those with baseline hypertension can cause a massive rise in blood pressure and result in stroke and other injury. So I'm a frequent contributor on Fox News uh, in the nine o'clock hour. And in our hour, uh, several months ago, a woman came on age 72 who had this happen to her and she had a massive rise in blood pressure and suffered a hemorrhagic stroke. And now she's devastated and paralyzed on the left side of her body. This is due to the vaccine and it's coming out in the medical literature. This inflammation that occurs in the heart has really, in a sense, socially weaponized the vaccine. Uh, uh, young parents and children don't want the vaccine, and now they're feeling as if they're forced into it. This analysis by Tracy Hogan Collies from the University of California at Davis relied on the VARES and the VSAFE data. She found that 86% of these young people with myocarditis require hospitalization, so it's clearly not mild. Anything that we have to hospitalize a young person for cannot be mild, and it's not mild. And she showed with this that the rates of this myocarditis or cardiac uh, injury syndrome are higher than that of, take, of getting hospitalized with COVID-19. So here for a young person, if a parent takes them in for a vaccination, the child is more likely to be hospitalized with the COVID-19 vaccine than be hospitalized with COVID-19 uh, respiratory illness. So for either death or myocarditis, the vaccines are not a favorable risk-benefit relationship. Now, these are very rare events. The majority of patients take the vaccine, nothing happens to them. But when myocarditis does happen to an individual who's stricken by it, the vaccine goes to the heart and causes this damage, it's explosive. Uh, Rose, uh, that um, Hogue showed that it, it tends to occur in boys after the second shot, you can see from the upper panel, and that the lower panel, uh, you can see that um, in the lower right panel, that what she's finding from the VSAFE and VARES data is much higher. It's about 50% higher than what the original CDC estimate is. So the CDC that said, well, this is rare, that's not being borne out in the data. Again, this is a peer-reviewed publication. So without protection from the pharmaceutical laws, our vaccines are going to continue to do more harm. The pharmaceutical laws and regulatory agencies say at about 50 deaths, remove a product from the market or a black box warning. There should be clear warnings about death and myocarditis and all this damage that's occurring in the consent form. People are still being taken into vaccine centers in Canada, and they are not receiving informed consent on what can happen to their body. The vaccines are not considered safe now, either side of the Atlantic. And I wanted to update you that the evidence-based consulting group in the UK, the principal consulting group to the World Health Organization, has declared several months ago that an immediate halt to the vaccine program should occur while an independent safety evaluation is untaken. They believe that the vaccines are not safe for human use in the UK. This is from the yellow card system. So just like we've analyzed the red box report from the United States, the yellow card system in the UK finds the exact same red flags. So there are citizen petitions into the FDA are against full approval of vaccines. And so far those petition approvals have held. None of the vaccines are fully approved. Pfizer on August 23rd was not approved. Uh, it got a continuation of the EUA. The BioNTech product Comirnaty received what's called a biological licensing agent a, a, agreement. What came out of that meeting was a false talking point that Pfizer was approved. And that went all the way up to the president of the United States and it was completely incorrect. The person who signed the BLA letter to BioNTech, Dr. Gruber resigned within seven days. So there's been a failure of the COVID-19 vaccines to stop COVID-19. 
So it was bad enough that the vaccines are not sufficiently safe, but they're actually not stopping the infection. What we know here from a report on September 17th, going back in time, we actually had reasonable protection. With Moderna, there was 92% protection against hospitalization. With Pfizer, there was 77% and Janssen, 68%. Well, what happened was that was all with the legacy variants. And in the paper reveals that they did not analyze for patients who had the Delta variant. And what we know of the Delta variant now is there have been outbreaks. This is a, a British uh, a naval vessel where everyone's vaccinated and they got a Delta outbreak. Uh, this happened in a Houston wedding, a Democratic uh, plane flight from Texas to Washington, and in a full lockdown in Ho Chi Minh City. There's been multiple outbreaks of purely Delta. Here's another one, Bardstable County, Massachusetts. The light blue are those who are fully vaccinated. The dark blue are the unvaccinated. And this is in congregate settings. I can tell you, this is a CDC paper published from July 30th. It's obvious that the vaccines don't stop the Delta variant and people who have been vaccinated when they go in congregate settings, it's obvious that they're not any more safe or any more um, less of a threat than anybody else. The Mayo Clinic in this paper from Purinac and colleagues uh, with 25,589 people from Rochester, Minnesota had Moderna at 76% protection against hospitalization. Now Pfizer below 50% uh, below at 42% protection, no data on J&J. &J. These are nowhere near the 90% protection levels we saw just against the respiratory illness out of the clinical trials. It's obvious the vaccines are losing their control over the infection. Now Moderna has consistently looked better because Moderna is 100 micrograms of messenger RNA, whereas Pfizer's 30 micrograms. Pfizer is a third of the dose of Moderna and then Johnson & Johnson is a totally different mechanism. In Israel, where they use Pfizer, again, the low-dose messenger RNA vaccine, you can see here the percent of cases that's fully vaccinated that have COVID-19 is 86%. You don't have to be an epidemiologist to recognize that the vaccines have failed wholesale in Israel. Israel's Delta curve is bigger than their pre-vaccination curve. They actually have a worse problem with COVID-19 now in Israel than they had before the vaccines ever came on the market. Our CDC is telling us as of October 12th, just a few days ago, that the vaccines are failing. Here are the data. This is just spontaneous reported data. It's not the universe of cases, but the CDC has 31,895 cases that have been pushed forward to them from a community uh, departments of health. Uh, that 31,895 that have either died or been hospitalized. And sadly, 23% of that composite is deaths. And if you look at this line here, 85% of the deaths, 67% of the hospitalizations are seniors over age 65. So while our public health agencies have had a preoccupation for on children for months and months and months, they're taking their eye off the ball. The panic COVID-19 is a problem and a crisis among seniors. It's not a crisis among children. It's always been about our seniors. These are the forgotten people of society. And here we are, a CDC report showing the vaccines are failing in seniors. We have data on the left from Havers and colleagues, the CDC COVID net network, and on the right from the VA from Fillmore and colleagues through June that showed that 23% Americans hospitalized with COVID-19 have been vaccinated. These data say in June, the false talking point that it was um, 
uh, 99% of people in the hospital unvaccinated was not true. It was a false talking point that hospital administrators were following by the administration. In a sense, it was propaganda, false information put forward by those in people of authority, but yet the publications show that in fact, vaccinated people were landing in the hospital. Now CDC data, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, our, meta, our, our program for seniors in the United States, you can see here, they have a total of 161,000 seniors that have developed COVID-19. They have 33,000 seniors who have been hospitalized from the CMS database. This is through August 10th. And this is the Delta variant as it shades in here. I can tell you that the important point is 60% of Americans over age 65 hospitalized with COVID-19 have been vaccinated. So our data, whether it's the CDC through spontaneous reports or CMS through their databases are telling Americans the current sets of vaccines are failing and they're failing because of the Delta outbreak. Here's the United States curve. This is our pre-vaccination curve. We now have 60% of Americans vaccinated. It has made zero impact on this Delta pandemic. And there was plenty of time for the vaccines to have an effect. We know within a few months, the vaccines, they should be squashing these curves. And in fact, they're not. So by pushing mass vaccination, our governments have created evolutionary pressures on COVID-19. This paper from Neeson and colleagues show at about 25% vaccinated, we actually start to drop the diversity of the viral lineages, the diversity of strains. And we've been basically fooled with mother nature. We never do this. We never vaccinate into the middle of a pandemic. We always vaccinate against very low prevalence viruses in the community. This was really a gamble. This was a gamble on a worldwide um, a, a, a platform uh, to see if we could squash the pandemic with vaccines and it's backfiring. Why? Because in this paper by Venkata Krishnan, the, the uh, virus has mutated. This is the spike protein here. The antibody binding site is in green. The, the, the um, spike protein is mutated now in such a way where it basically is not expressing the binding point for the, for the antibody. The antibody is this big, dark gray blob. And so now the virus can't be touched by the antibodies that have been raised by the vaccine. And that's the Delta variant. Now you can see now, if you go back in May in the United States, we had a pretty healthy diversity of the British variant. Uh, we had the gamma variant. Uh, we had um, the uh, eta variant. We had a lot of different variants. Now you can see Delta now is 99% of what we have because the, the um, Delta variant can thrive among the unvaccinated. We know this from this paper by Acharyan et al. University of California, Davis. These are microbiologic samples from the nose of the vaccinated and unvaccinated, and it's no different. I can tell you the vaccinated are carrying and spreading the virus just as readily as the unvaccinated. The vaccines don't stop the virus in the nose and mouth of those who are fully vaccinated. Here's another paper from the University of Wisconsin Department of Public Health, vaccinated and unvaccinated. In fact, they took the samples from the vaccinated and unvaccinated and they see how infectious they were and the vaccinated were equally as infectious as the unvaccinated in this incipient phase of COVID-19. So the vaccines don't protect the schools or the employers one bit. The vaccines don't protect anybody from getting on a subway or a plane or going into a public space, not one bit. The vaccines don't protect someone among their family members. 
The only thing that matters is who has symptoms. If someone has symptoms, they can pass the illness. Everybody on this slide here had early symptoms. If we actually just take patients who have people have symptoms and keep them out of congregate settings, keep them out of work and school, we'd be fine. The vaccines are not good enough to let somebody who's sick go into the workplace. We have to treat the vaccinated and unvaccinated the same because the vaccines are not working. So we must have a pivot to early therapy for high-risk COVID-19. We've always had four pillars of pandemic response. This is from my US Senate testimony, trying to reduce the spread, early home treatment, the most important pillar, treat in the hospital, and then vaccination that we've covered. So the pandemic response in Canada should have always been on these four pillars. Canadians should have got regular updates on every pillar of the pandemic response. And vaccinated or not, acute COVID-19 and high-risk seniors needs treatment. We cannot um, uh, have any form of discrimination based on whether or not someone took the vaccine. 70% of patients in my practice took the vaccine. I didn't encourage it. I didn't discourage it. Because the vaccines are all research, it's unethical as a doctor for me to encourage somebody to take the vaccine. That violates the Nuremberg Code. So every doctor that's tried to encourage a patient to take the vaccine has broken a code of medical ethics. Because the, re the vaccines are research, doctors cannot recommend them. It's against the code of medical ethics. Now we have published that the most important thing to do is treat the illness early. It's much more important than lockdowns or testing asymptomatic people or vaccine. Why? Because acutely sick people, when they're treated, we reduce the spread of illness, the intensity of duration of symptoms, and we reduce hospitalization and death. Here are the two seminal papers that I published with a host of co-authors that basically taught the world how to treat COVID-19 early to reduce hospitalization and death. These are the most widely downloaded, utilized papers in all of outpatient COVID-19, the most impactful papers. And I had a cast of incredible authors that helped me do it. This is the cornerstone of what we do. When patients develop COVID-19, we quarantine at home. We use povidone, iodine, or betadine, very dilute in nasal washes. We do two times a day for prevention. We go up to every four hours in acute treatment because we know the nose and mouth are loaded with virus. We decontaminate the nose and mouth. It works tremendously well. We can abort the illness 75% of the time. Age under 50, we just recommend nutraceuticals. I won't go through them. Watchful waiting, return to work. Over 50 or medical problems, we recommend going on to monoclonal antibody infusions. You have these in Canada. Everybody in Canada ought to make some calls, know what center in your area is giving the monoclonal antibody infusions and how you can get one if you get sick. If you can't get a monoclonal antibody infusion, moving on to hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and outside of Canada, favipiravir in Russia and in Asia, combined with azithromycin or doxycycline, uh, we on uh, day five of respiratory symptoms, we use oral prednisone. We now use oral budesonide, uh, I'm sorry, uh, inhaled budesonide all the way through. Uh, we use full dose aspirin, 325 milligrams, and we use uh, uh, anticoagulants like uh, uh, Lovenox and um, oral anticoagulants if patients are at high risk for blood clots or if they have low oxygen saturation. Now, I can tell you right now, as someone who I am very familiar how to use this protocol, no single drug is critical to this. So in Canada, the first thing you say is, well, we don't have hydroxychloroquine. So that doesn't mean the whole treatment protocol goes down. You can treat without hydroxychloroquine, or you can say, oh, they won't give me ivermectin. You can treat without ivermectin. Uh, we can use a whole variety of drugs. I don't want to see a single person on this call over age 50 not get treated for COVID-19. So work with the protocol, work with your doctors, make a call to your doctor. 
and say, listen, do you treat COVID-19? And if they don't, make, if they don't treat it or they say there's no treatment, say make a referral. Start pushing the buttons to get Canadian doctors in the game. We must treat COVID-19 early. In the United States, why are we using drugs off-label? Because the FDA tells us to do that. The FDA says one reason doctors should use drugs off the original advertising label is when we're treating a disease or a medical condition where there is an unmet need. We have a home treatment guide through the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. It's free, download it. Every household in the world should have this treatment guide. It gives all the information of what to do. Remember, a lot of the things we recommend are over the counter. Every Canadian household should have full dose aspirin, should have all the vitamins and supplements, should have a famotidine, an over-the-counter antacid that's useful to reduce viral replication, should have betadine. And if, if iodine allergic, should use hydrogen peroxide, should have nasal spray bottles. We should have the ability to treat COVID-19 at home doing everything you can because we know the hospital is too late. If we treat the viral infection, will handle the pandemic crisis. It's so clear. We cannot let the virus slaughter our seniors at home for two weeks with no treatment and then have them end up in the hospital. The hospital is absolutely too late to manage COVID-19. It's very successful. This is a picture from treatment domiciliary in Italy. And I'm telling you, in major cities in Italy where they use a hydroxychloroquine-based protocol, they have announced zero hospitalizations. Do you know in Italy, their Delta curve is less than 25% of their pre-vaccination curve. Now they have vaccinations in Italy, but they have gone full throttle on early treatment in the second half of the pandemic, led by Eric Grimaldi, one of my close colleagues. Now does early treatment really work? Two very good studies with valid con uh, comparison groups show about a 75% reduction in death and over an 85% reduction in hospitalization. There's no doubt about it that our seniors should be treated with multiple drugs, about four to six drugs in combination. The average duration of treatment for a senior is about 10 days. Some go to 30 days. Young person, maybe five days, but someone my age is 10 days of treatment to get through COVID-19. Don't go too short on the drugs. In a nursing home study from Canada, Dr. Paul Alexander showed that almost any protocol in the nursing home reduces mortality by 60%. We should never have our seniors be denied treatment for COVID-19. Remember, it's a crisis of seniors. This is not a problem for young people, whether it's hydroxychloroquine-based approach, a doxycycline-based approach, plus steroids and anticoagulants. Don't get hung up on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. We can treat the syndrome without those drugs. We use other drugs in combination to reduce viral replication, address inflammation, and address blood clotting. The blood clotting is what causes the low oxygen saturation and ultimately kills the patient. Jennifer Block, the British Medical Journal reporter, has reported now that we have 120 million Americans through May who are fully immune, 44% uh, of those 18 through 49. We have herd immunity coming in big time. That means the virus will not spread so much. And it also means that these people who are already immune, they don't need vaccination because the vaccine cannot improve upon natural immunity. One is natural immunity. They have a negligible chance of getting COVID-19 in the future. There are three papers I cite here, Kramer, Ra, and Methudius, their first authors, showing the vaccines cause harm in people who have previously had the virus. It makes sense. The, the body has already been loaded with this spike protein. It can't take any more from the vaccine. The vaccine hurts people who have recovered from COVID-19. The problem, the reason why everybody's on the phone right now is because the vaccines look like they're a bad product. 
a bad set of products. They look like they're a bad idea. The vaccines look like they're backfiring. The vaccines look like they don't work. Well, now the problem is our freedom is at risk because if we don't take the vaccine, we actually basically start to have some social consequences. There's a, if we break this uh, circle of medical freedom, remember the principle of medical freedom is autonomy. We should all have a say of what goes into our body. And ultimately we decide if we break that circle of medical freedom, then that encroaches on a circle of social freedom. And as soon as that's broken, our economic freedom is broken. And you can see these circles are gonna take us down. So we must preserve our circle of medical freedom. No one under any circumstances whether an approved or unapproved product can have receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal. Each person on this call has the principle of autonomy. They get to decide what goes in their body, period, period. This is very, very important. This is worth fighting for all the way. Now in the UK, they're fighting. Now he doesn't know how to spell ivermectin, but he knows he wants it because in the UK, they are not giving the appropriate medications to patients with acute COVID-19. People have figured this out. Our message has gone through that the vaccines are not safe, uh, they're not effective, and that early treatment is safe and effective, and people know early treatment is the way out of the pandemic. Uh, it is a unbelievable travesty that people have to, to basically sue hospitals and doctors and chiefs of staff and the U.S. hospitals in order to get ivermectin and appropriate treatment to their seniors in the hospital. And I think historians are gonna write basically stories of shame of how doctors did not use shared decision-making. They did not respect the patients and family's wishes to give ivermectin or full dose anticoagulation or full, or full doses of steroids to our seniors suffering with COVID-19. Everything we do in medicine is a negotiation. I finished in the hospital today all day long, I negotiated with patients on drugs and their families. Did we do this as part of medicine? And for doctors now to take a totalitarian state uh, approach and not negotiate a single thing and tell patients and families that they can't get adequate treatment and leading to their death is creating an uproar. There's a public and private outrage over ineffective and unsafe uh, forced vaccination that is really driving a tremendous amount of discord in the United States. We're seeing censorship of scientific discourse. Uh, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson has been pounding social media. We know that social media is trying to craft a narrative that's suppressing any information on treatment, any information on vaccine safety, and trying to railroad the whole population into mass vaccination who doesn't want it. There is a crushing censorship of medical science right now. And I can tell you, I am one of the most prolific authors in all of medicine right now and I can feel the crushing effect of censorship. There is a hunting of American doctors right now. We have about 500 doctors that are considered American heroes, and we're commonly on TV. Uh, and you know, people are asking for our opinions. Uh, I have testified as introduced in many places, and I've been now, I'm probably a popular media person because people want my opinion because I am giving the data and the analysis that our federal agencies are not giving. Uh, the biggest thing I've done so far is to go on Daystar. Some of you may recognize Daystar is a Christian worldwide media program. And Daystar, I reached 1.7 billion people with my first show. The second show, the second one I did with Dr. Ben Marble, an American hero, we probably reached another 1.7 billion people. 
I can tell you, our word is getting out. The world knows now that something is up. The vaccines are not safe enough for general use and they don't work well enough to be compelling. And the world knows now that COVID-19 can be treatable. It's a tough illness in our seniors, but it can be treatable and we can get ourselves through the pandemic. If we don't do something now, the concern is that Canada and the United States is gonna turn out to be like Australia. Australia has very few cases of COVID. They have far more cases of vaccine deaths in Australia than they have COVID deaths. And yet Australians are, are basically fighting against each other out in the streets and shooting rubber bullets at each other for no reason. If Australia tomorrow just went back to work, they lifted all the restrictions, nothing would happen because they have very little COVID. They could just treat it as it came up in their hospitals and move on. Instead, Australia is basically strangling themselves economically, socially, and morally, and ethically, and they're really bringing themselves to a crisis. I don't know why Australia, it's a very reasonable place. It reminds me a lot of Canada and the United States, but this is a strong warning to Americans and Canadians. We have to take charge now so we don't become like Australia in the next three to six months. People have asked me, what's behind all this? Dr. McCullough, what, who's doing this to us? I recommend COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey, written by Peter and Ginger Bragan. This has a thousand references in it. It's right now, it's already hit number one in political science in Kindle. It's number one in Amazon in medical books. I can tell you this is the most definitive book on the origins of the COVID-19 virus. Who is involved? How is it created? How is this planned out? How is this being capitalized on by vaccine manufacturers, by governments? Who's actually benefiting from this uh, basically a totalitarian takeover of the world? I highly recommend it. Best $15 you'll ever spend in order to get oriented in what's going on. So to finish and conclude, COVID-19 pandemic is a global disaster. Its pathophysiology is complex. It's not amenable to a single drug. The pre-hospital phase is where the action is. We must treat seniors early. Hospitalization and late treatment form an inadequate safety net. The mortality is unacceptably high. Some of you on this call have lost family members as I have. It is a tragedy because the treatment is too late. Early ambulatory therapy with sequence multidrug regimen is supported by available sources of evidence and has a positive benefit to risk relationship. We don't have to wait for randomized trials or guidelines. We don't have to wait for Health Canada, the NIH or, or FDA to tell us what to do. Doctors and patients have to take matters into their own hands to reduce hospitalization and death. We have to safely temporize to close out this crisis. The COVID-19 genetic vaccines have an unfavorable profile. They don't look safe enough for general use at this point in time. They can't be supported. This is the US uh, red box report and the yellow card system in the UK, both showing not safe for general use. Um, uh, they are not sufficiently effective and, and the vaccines are not stopping COVID-19. Censorship and reprisal are working to crush medical freedom, scientific discourse and medical progress. It's one of the reasons why we're doing this so late at night is because we're just trying to get information out to each other because our agencies right now are in free fall and they have not served us uh, to the um, extent that we need. Our public agencies work for us, not vice versa. They should be serving us. And what Tucker Carlson said, I went on show with Tucker. Tucker says the only thing that's being censored right now is the truth. So I'll stop here and I'll open it up for questions or comments. Well, Dr. McCullough, that was an amazing summary of the, of the science and it, it's so compelling. It, it must be 
incredibly difficult for you who is so informed about what actually is the state of science with COVID to see what's happening globally? Well, people know something's going on. You know, one of the very first calls I got at the beginning of the pandemic, when I was working with the very first protocols, I was called by the US White House and then by the Senate. I've advised uh, heads of state across the world. People know something is going on. They know that they're being misled by their major public health agencies, and they're being misled, by the way, by their major academic institutions. You know, Canada has wonderful academic medical centers. They haven't done anything to help outpatients with COVID-19. The academic medical centers are in lockstep. The only thing they're offering is the vaccine. Well, I watched your keynote address to the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, and you said something about this is not about COVID. This is some kind of mental psychosis. And it, it's very effective. I mean, it's, it's, it's across the globe and everybody's in lockstep. It, it, it's actually quite shocking how captured in humanity is at this time. It is. And I can tell you, I just saw a whole row of patients today and they, they were had differing views. Some were completely against the vaccine. They're scared to death of it. Others had taken the vaccine readily. They were ready for a booster. And uh, we know when we start talking about this, many are blindsided. They don't know about the safety data because it's been so suppressed. Others take a different view. Some of them figure, you know what? I took the vaccine. I did fine with it. And you know, if 180 million people took it, but 16 million people died, small price to pay. I've heard that before. Wow. Small price to pay. You, know, you can finish that statement by saying small price to pay for the Aryan race because that's exactly the philosophy in nascent uh, Nazi Germany that was taken, right. that you'll, you'll kill a few to have the bigger herd survive. And some people who take the vaccine actually feel that. They feel like, hey, I took the vaccine, I took the risk, now you have to take it too. What I see is the bigger loss is more than even people's lives is the loss of our freedom. We're, we're witnessing coercion that I've never seen in my lifetime. And people don't seem to recognize that there, there, we're, we're, there's terrorism going on here, medical terrorism. We're being extorted and people are giving in to the, those that are extorting them. People have said, Dr. McCullough, I have to take the vaccine because I have to keep my job. Which vaccine should I take? Which one will cause the least injury? What's the, what's the uh, antidote? How can I get through it? And do you know what I ask them? I ask them, what's the social contract? If you take the vaccine, are you being guaranteed five years of employment, 10 years, 20 years, three months? And there's actually no social contract. Right. We know now that, that the vaccines are failing because they can't even last a year. And they're talking about boosters coming up at, 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 at six months or three months. Uh, th these aren't vaccines. These are actually genetic gene transfer, gene modifying therapies that were planned to be given every few months. And so there's no social contract that you're going to keep your job. This idea of only oh, take a vaccine and I'm good. I'm, I, you know, I, I'm past a roadblock. No, you're not. The vaccines, are we going to have mass layoffs in three months when the boosters come up and people don't want to take the boosters? So, you know, people have to, we have to really address this. You know, nobody knows who is driving these vaccine mandates. Nobody wants them. Everybody I talk to is against vaccine mandates. So the question is somebody at some company or some board level made a decision on vaccine mandates. All of you work for companies. All of you work in various government agencies. Why don't you start going up the food chain and figuring out who's making these decisions because they have to get feedback. Nobody wants the vaccines. 
So in spite of all this really dark message of, you know, the tyranny that's going on in your keynote address, you said something right at the end about this is a very exciting time to be alive. Could you speak to that? Well, you know, this is a time of reawakening. Uh, you know, I'm seeing people uh, get much closer to their family members, particularly our seniors. Uh, you know, many of us have seen death and tragedy in our family. It's a time for a reunion. Uh, we have found a tremendous uh, camaraderie among those who are treating and caring for COVID-19 patients. Uh, you know, it's a tremendous time for courage. It takes, it takes courage for everybody to get on this call. It takes courage for everybody to review the data. This is a call for courage because many of us believe that we're in a special spiritual time. There is something going on that's much bigger than the virus and much bigger than public health agencies is going on all over the world. And everyone on this call knows that something that goes on all over the world at the same time in the minds of everybody has to be something pretty big. To me, I see this as a, an opportunity for humanity's transformation. We, we have acted like children, and it's time for us to step up and become adults. But we, we often have to lose things before we actually have value for them. What, what sustains you in this? What keeps you, I, I, you must be working incredible hours. Uh, you're, you're being asked to bring th this information to audiences globally. I can't imagine what your schedule looks like. What sustains you in this? What keeps you hopeful, excited, compassionate? You know, I tell you, I think I've fallen into a special role, whatever that be, the very first calls from the White House, from the U.S. Senate, U.S. Senate testimony, multiple state Senate testimony, um, really my prominence in the media, uh, I'm relied upon for my analyses. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm doing the best I can. I have a, a medical practice. I'm trying to take care of my patients every day. Uh, I'm doing the best I possibly can. Uh, but we have a tremendous team. You know, in the United States, we now have the Truth for Health Foundation. We have the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, American Frontline Doctors, and we have the um, uh, a Frontline Critical Care Consortium. We have four major medical uh, groups of doctors and providers that are unified in treating patients early. We're actually now managing these vaccine injuries and our core is growing. We're actually trying to build a core of doctors in Canada that have the courage to treat patients with COVID-19. And it does take courage. It takes intellectual courage, it takes physical courage. It takes um, a sense of filling one's Hippocratic oath as opposed to uh, being threatened by a, um, a royal college or a board. Um, in many ways, this is a game of chicken. This is a game of who's bigger and stronger and more brave. This mm. is a time of bravery. And I can't encourage people enough in any way you can be brave. There's some type of psychosis. There's some type mm. of dark cloud over the earth that's fallen and it's thicker over Canada and it's mm. opaque over Australia right now. In the United States, we've got some clear zones, you know, Florida and Texas looking pretty good. We can actually see what's going on, but you're going to have to break it. The Canadians are going to have to break this. And you know what? I think the breaking is by every little conversation. Mm -hmm. If everybody on this line could make a call to their doctor's office and start talking to the staff about treating COVID-19, do you treat COVID-19? 
Can you at least call in some prednisone if I get sick? How about some budesonide? How about doxycycline? Can you get me some Lovenox injections? You'll start to have some discussions. Pick up the treatment guide and teach your family members about using dilute povidone iodine. Start doing the oral and nasal washes, especially when you go out and have contact with people. And when, when someone gets sick, teach them how to do the oral nasal uh, decontamination procedure. It's working wonderful. Do you know in huge cities in Bangladesh and in India and Hong Kong, they're using the local treatment and they're being incredibly effective. You know, you know, Canadians have been using hand sanitizer. It's not a hand infection. It's an infection in the nose and mouth. Sterilize the nose and mouth a couple of times a day and you'll be rewarded by it. So if everybody on this call can take a few steps, then you can change somebody else's mind. And if someone else's mind can change, and then it's going to be one by one by one. Well, I think the mass hysteria is able to sustain itself because of this fear that, that's global. And one of the things that you're doing is you're sending a very powerful message that this condition is treatable, that the crisis we experience is because it's not being treated. And once we treat it, then the fear goes away. And I think once the fear goes away, people can start to think more clearly and stop masking their children and stop injecting their kids. Because uh, it, it's painful, for me, it's painful to watch young children walking around with masks on, terrified of killing their grandparent. You know, one of the most uh, liberating things is to understand COVID recovered. There are people on this call that have had COVID. I haven't. Mm. I've had it. I can tell you, I can face COVID right in my face. I can't get it a second time. I had the alpha variant last year. I was involved in research. I had it sequenced. I've come face to face with Delta, coughing all over me, little kids, all kinds of secretions all over. You can't get it a second time. So I can tell you it's liberating to get COVID-19, get through it. It's just like getting chicken pox. You know, mom was so happy when the kids finally got chicken pox because it was over with. You can't get chicken pox again. You can't get COVID-19 again. Don't be fooled by these false positive PCRs. Once you've had COVID-19, refrain from getting any more tests because it's over with and you can go out in your life and not be worried. You can be around your loved ones and you're not going to give them to them. I wear a mask at the hospital. I wear a mask today. But with each patient, I said, listen, I've had the virus. I even have a naturally immune bracelet that I wear. Listen, I've, I've had it. You know, if, I'm comfortable if you want to take off your mask. The vast majority of patients take off their masks and say, Dr. McCullough, hallelujah. You know, we've got to break this cycle of fear. Right, right. That's, that's the real condition that's contagious is fear. And in the same way, courage is contagious, isn't it? It is. And you know, it's fun to be courageous. I think it's fun to get out there. If everybody out here could talk to a few people through social media, you know, give a positive message about early treatment, give a positive message that, you know, we can get through this. We're on the backside of the Delta curve and let's just hope the virus doesn't mutate again. If we don't uh, uh, push any more of these vaccines, especially on the children, we cannot push the vaccines on the children. If this virus mutates again, we could be in trouble. The kids don't need the vaccine. It's only going to cause harm. This is a problem of the elderly. Keep our focus on the seniors. Let's take all the focus off the kids. We'll be fine. And do you feel like finally people are hearing you, that finally our politicians and our medical authorities are hearing you? Is, is there awakening happening from I think your perspective? So. Yeah, I was in a restaurant last night, my wife and another couple, two doctors from Fort Worth and a woman came up and she goes, are you Dr. McCullough? I'm from on TV. You know, I guess it's working. I didn't want to be a TV star. I'm just a regular doctor. I do research. But if this is my role, 
And if my role is trying to get truth out to people in the world, I'm, I'm happy to serve. So if I hear what you've said over this last hour, this is a treatable condition. You don't need to be afraid. Explain to your family and friends it's treatable. And, and let's get on with life. Absolutely. And don't think it depends on hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. We can use it. Doctors can use other sequence of different combinations of drugs. And don't think that the solution is the vaccine. I'll say one last thing. I've been following my patients carefully. I don't think the vaccine is going to cause long-term damage. I really don't. If someone has taken the vaccine and they got through it, if nothing happened in the first 30 days, I think they're good. And if they just don't take any more of these shots, I think they'll be okay. I'm not predicting long-term damage. No harm, no foul. I am worried now about getting a shot once every three months. That's a continued uh, Russian roulette with the spike protein, more genetic loading, more genetic loading, and, and I don't like the looks of that. It just all smells bad. Dr. McCullough, you are a, a valuable warrior during this, this war that we're in, and, and we're grateful to you. I know that this is late for you. You're on Eastern time. You've been going at it all day long and jump from one thing into this. Uh, thank you for making the time for us, adjusting your schedule so that we could have this time with you. Thank you, and I'm happy to share the slides, uh, so I'll shoot them over to you. I'm glad because I, I've been inundated with uh, messages in the chat saying, could we please have those slides? Yes, and, and they're all evidence-based. Every single one of them is, is citations, not my opinion at all. And every one of those references are pinpoint. Uh, if you find value in the kind of conversations that we have here at Vaccine Choice Canada, I invite you to support our work and our mission by becoming a member. Vaccine Choice Canada is Canada's oldest and most trusted vaccine risk awareness authority.